Have you ever wondered why the Christian gospel just sounds so stupid? I mean, if you've grown up in a Christian family, maybe that's a bit of an unusual statement to make. It makes perfect sense to you. But I think that if you're coming at Christianity from the outside and you haven't heard what Christianity teaches uh, before, it really does sound like a little kid sat down at preschool and made up his own religion, doesn't it? Right. So let's just try this size. There's this God, right? But he's three gods, but he's not really three gods. He's one God, but there's three persons and they're all God, but there's still one God. Uh, anyway, so there's that, that, that God and, and one of them becomes a man because at the very beginning of human history, when God created everything from nothing, there was another man called Adam and he sinned by disobeying God when God told him not to eat from a, a piece of fruit on a tree uh, because there was a talking snake called Satan. And because of that, all of humanity now, because of their sin, is judged by God. But because God loves us, he sends Jesus, who is God, but not all of God, but is all of God, to become a man. Uh, and he dies on a cross in our place and takes the punishment we deserve 2,000 years before we even existed. And, and there's still like, and so he, he's there, he dies, but then he rises again to new life again. Um, and uh, that was after three days. Why three days? We don't really know. But then, then he's reigning in heaven and has been for the last 2,000 years in a bodily form that we don't know where it is. And yet there's wars and suffering and things are happening in the Ukraine. And one day he's going to turn up and he's going to give eternal life to people who believed in his name, even people who were really evil and didn't really do anything good. But because they repented, they were okay. But good people who didn't believe in Jesus but did nice things to people will still be judged have you ever tried to explain that to a friend? Surely there was this moment where you're just like, what on earth am I saying? I know this to be true. I've committed my life to it because it is true. But it sounds so stupid. Richard Dawkins, uh, the famous atheist, I have to say thanks for bearing with me on that. It's a long story, the Christian gospel, isn't it? Richard Dawkins, I think, captures it really well when he says the following about religious believers. Get this. He says, they feel uneducated, which they are, often rather stupid, which they are, inferior, which they are, and paranoid about pointy-headed intellectuals, presume he's talking about himself there, looking down on them, which with some justification, they do. I think that just about sums it up, doesn't it? We feel uneducated, stupid, and paranoid that the thing that we have committed our lives to sounds just so foolish. Have you ever wondered why that is? I mean, did God just make a colossal miscalculation? Just decide to market himself to the irrational, superstitious masses and just kind of conveniently forget about the university educated? What was he doing? Why did it end up like this? What if I told you that God did it on purpose? And that every time you try and explain that gospel to your friends, every time you hear it, it's supposed to sound stupid. The message, the one message, his message that could save humanity from his judgment and usher in eternal life. That's the message that he sets out to make as foolish and as unconvincing as possible. God did it on purpose. Now, if you hear that, what do you think your response, your first response would be to, to that sort of statement? I think it's sort of like lines of, God, you're an idiot. 
Christian friend, with respect, you're an idiot. You're uneducated, stupid, inferior, and you are right to be paranoid because what you are saying is madness. And yet I want to put it to you that at least what we see in today's passage, that is precisely how God wants you to react the first time you hear his message. You see, in today's passage, and we read this in our first verse of the passage in verse 18, that the message of the cross, which is Paul's way of describing the Christian gospel, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And what we see in this verse is a statement that God is using the message of the cross to divide humanity. And he's going to divide them in such a way that those who receive the gospel and know it to be true cannot do so on the basis of their own wisdom and cleverness. They can't look at it and go, brilliant, it makes perfect sense, let's get on top of this. It will only ever be on the basis of God's gracious action to open their eyes to enable them to see the truth. So God uses that message to divide humanity on the basis of his action, not on our cleverness. And the question that I have is, why on earth does he do that? And that's our question for today. Why is it that God makes the gospel sound so stupid? And we're going to get to answering that question shortly. But before we get there, we need to talk a bit about the world's wisdom, and in particular, why the world's wisdom is futile. Uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to kind of sift our way down from verse 19 and onwards. And so this is where we're going to begin. Let's have a look at verse 19. Uh, you'll notice there uh, that verse 19 begins with a four. Uh, so classic Bible study technique. Whenever you see that happen, the four tells you that the sentence that follows it is explaining the sentence that happened before it. So why is it that the word of the cross is foolishness to some and God's power to others? Verse 18. Well, here's the reason why. For verse 19, for it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. It is God's stated intention to destroy the world's wisdom. Now, in the Bible, there are two types of wisdom. You see this in a bunch of different places. There's the wisdom of God, and then there's the wisdom of man. Now, the wisdom of God is revealed to us by God. It's not something that we came up with. Uh, we receive it as God speaks to us. And that's why if you go to somewhere like the book of Proverbs, it begins by saying that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. It's not that we can't just determine things naturally from the created order, but none of it makes sense unless we understand that it all ultimately comes from God, is wrapped up in God. So whatever God reveals to us, we take seriously. And that shapes our entire understanding of the world in which we live. So that's the wisdom of God. But then there's a second type of wisdom, and that's the wisdom of man, human wisdom. And in the Bible, if something is described as human, it is not a good thing. Because to be human is to be unspiritual. And we saw this briefly last week. Uh, and if you've got your Bibles, you can look there in chapter 3, verse 1, when Paul talks to the Corinthians and he calls them unspiritual, natural, human. And to be human is to have no knowledge of God. In fact, it's not just to be ignorant, it's to be in active opposition to the things of God. So if you remember uh, Jesus and Peter in Mark 8, uh, and Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You do not have the things of God in mind, but the things of man. And so human things, not a good thing. And it's that type of wisdom, the second type of wisdom that Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians 1. And we know that because the verse that we just read, verse 19, is actually quoting from Isaiah 29. 
And whenever the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, it's always good practice to go back to the original context and have a read. And that's what we're going to do now. So if you've got your Bibles, head over to Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. Uh, A friendly, generous CEO will share their Bible with you. Otherwise, you'll just have to listen very carefully if you sat next to that one CEO. We all know who that person is. Um, So let's go. Isaiah 29, verse 13. Now, in the original context, God is speaking to his people, Israel, uh, but we know that because Paul uses it in his new context, he's applying it to the whole of the world. But let's have a look at what God says to his people. 29 verse 13. The Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules that they have been taught. Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. And here's the quote. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord, who do their work in darkness and think, who sees us, who will know? And here's, I think, the summary of the whole situation. You turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed, that is to say humans, say to the one who formed it, that is to say God, you did not make me. Can the pot say to the potter, you know nothing. And it's that last little phrase there, you know nothing, that I think captures the heart of the world's wisdom. It turns to God, the creator of the universe, the one who had the genius to put it all together, and declares to him that you don't know a thing. And that worldly wisdom, it determines to make sense of the world and God by subjecting it to its own assessments and value systems rather than listening to God to order and construct things for them. So in other words, what it does is it makes itself the judge over all that it sees and hears. And you get this picture, I think, back in our passage, in today's passage in verse 22. You see, Paul, he takes the two great segments of humanity, the Jews who have God's revelation and the Gentiles or the Greeks there who don't. And he shows us that regardless of which camp you come from, whether you were the privileged few who had the revelation direct from God, or whether you weren't and you were ignorant and without God in the world, that regardless of who you were, all of humanity, all of us in the sinfulness of our own hearts, stand in judgment over God and the things that he says, and we resolve to know God on our terms alone. And you see that there, because what does it say? It says the Jews, they demand signs. In other words, they say something on the lines of, I'll believe in God if he does this thing that I want him to do. I'll believe in God if he heals my cancer. I'll believe in God if he gives me that job. Um, I'll believe in God if he reveals himself to me in a personal encounter that I can kind of verify somehow by my own means that it must have been true i mean i I still remember i was on a beach mission a number of years ago now and 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 we were talking to a guy who'd come along to one of the events we were running and he said to us directly look i I hear what you guys saying great if god came down right now and appeared to me i would believe everything that you've said and we tried to tell him that actually God did come down, but it was kind of 2,000 years ago, so he messed the timing up, but, but it did happen. But, but it didn't really convince him. It had to be on his terms. Otherwise, he wouldn't believe he was looking for a sign. Now, the Greeks, on the other hand, and these guys were the world power at the time, they look for wisdom. And what we mean by that is, is, is philosophy. 
And you get a sense of that in verse 20 when Paul says, where is the philosopher of this age? You see, the Greek world, they looked to their philosophies to understand the world. And so what they did is they created entire systems of thought that claimed to explain everything. And if something was new or different and it came along and it didn't fit into their grid, then they dismissed it as irrational or as foolish. And the problem with all human philosophy is that it proceeds on the basis of what we as humans think is right and reasonable and not what God says is right and reasonable. It doesn't mean that you have to give up your philosophy degree. Philosophy gives a lot of helpful contributions, but the foundation upon which it rests is wrong. And I think we see this um, every time that we do walk-up evangelism on campus. You don't have to be studying philosophy to kind of see the, the Greek tendency at work. Because we'll come up to them and we'll kind of, you know, hey, I'm from the CU. Uh, we're going around campus inviting people to kind of hear about um, uh, the gospel and what it is that we believe. And usually you've got a pretty good hit rate. People actually do want to talk, which is fantastic. And the conversation goes really well until you get to a certain point where you say something about our God that they don't think should be. And it kind of roughs up against their preconceived notions of who or what God should be. And it's at that point that they don't listen. Uh, and I think we see this, even if you're not doing walk-up on campus, because how many of us don't have a friend who has rejected the Christian uh, God because there's suffering in the world, um, or because he judges people, or because he has a particular view on sexuality? You see, at its heart, all human wisdom stands in judgment over God, and it will only ever accept a God of their choosing rather than the God who truly is as he's revealed himself. It was true then, it's true today. Today we live in a melting pot of wisdoms. All you need to do is hop onto YouTube and you'll be confronted with thousands upon thousands of different opinions, all of them claiming to know the true nature of the world and how we should live in it. But what is common to all of them, even though they are so different, is that they are man-made and man-driven. And because of that, they can never by their own wisdom know God. And you see that there in verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. And we continue on and we'll read that in a little bit later. But the thing that we see there is God has determined that we will never be able to get to him through our own wisdom. And yet we think we can. And that's the problem. Uh, John Calvin, who was a great Reformation theologian, uh, said this. I thought this image was really good, so I wanted to share it with you. The greatest geniuses are blinder than moles. So you've got this kind of erudite, kind of academic, and he's calling everybody's kind of blind moles. I just loved that. And he, and he said this. They never even sensed what God was doing in the world. They aimed at the target, and they shot it in the complete different direction. They didn't even get near Human reason neither approaches nor strives toward nor even takes a straight aim at this truth to understand who the true God is or what sort of God he wishes to be toward us. A little bit later on he says, We are drunk with the false opinion of our own insight and are thus extremely reluctant to admit that our insight is utterly blind and stupid in divine matters. We are drunk with the false opinion that our own insight matters. And if you want proof of that, you can actually just go to one of the other famous atheists, Daniel Dennett. He has decided to call all atheists brights. 
Uh, presumably because the reason is that as they cruise through the world, their, their, their knowledge, their perception into reality is shedding light upon the darkness in the world that they find. And yet, verse 21, we're reminded that God has determined that we will not know him through human wisdom. And what that tells me is that human wisdom, if you want to know God, who he truly is, it's futile, completely useless. It cannot help you. Now, knowing that is helpful, but it doesn't really get towards the heart of the question, which is why did God make the Christian gospel sound so stupid? It kind of shuts off one set of options for us. We won't go looking into how the world works and how it functions and how to know God from the world's wisdom. But, but if God in his wisdom has determined that would be the case, why does he make his message look so stupid? Like you would think that, you know, if he's trying to do compare and contrast, he'd make the Christian gospel so obvious and so beneficial and so wonderful that people could not but admit that this was the perfect philosophy and everyone would just kind of flock to it because the other stuff was rubbish. And yet God doesn't do that. Why does he make the gospel sound stupid? I think Paul gives us two reasons in the passage. The first is that uh, the Christian message, it takes the particular form of the cross because God is destroying the wisdom of the world. We saw that uh, again in verse 19, but we're going to return back to that. And then the second is that God is eliminating all human boasting. We're going to look at each one of those in turn. They're on your outlines if you're taking notes. Now, first of all, God is using the Christian message and making it into the shape of the cross to destroy the wisdom of the wise. We've already seen that all worldly wisdom, it's arrogant, it's rebellious, it sits in judgment over God. And so what God intends to show is that it is sinful foolishness. And he does that by coming up with his own foolish message, the message of the cross. Have another read of verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greek looks for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So what is it that God does? Well, he chooses the one symbol that is guaranteed to be rejected by both of the major divisions of humanity. He chooses the cross and he takes his promised Messiah, the Christ, the one who was promised to come and save humanity, to rule in glory, to restore the entirety of the world creation, remove sickness and war and suffering. And he takes that glorious figure and he nails him to a tree. And that message, the message of the crucified Christ, that message was unthinkable both to Jews and to Gentiles. So, for example, the Jews. The, the Jews for, for the Jews, the whole idea of a crucified Christ was a contradiction in terms. And if you read in the Old Testament, head over to Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, we read that anybody who is hung on a pole or a tree is cursed by God. It's not a sign of a powerful king come to reign. It's a sign of somebody who is under God's judgment and curse. And so to hear that God's Christ had been cursed, it was a stumbling block. It didn't compute. It didn't make sense. For the Gentiles, it was slightly different. These guys were predominantly members of the Roman Empire. The idea that crucifixion would be at the centre of God's plan for salvation was absolutely ludicrous. Because crucifixion as a death was the most shameful and degrading death that you could suffer. 
So here's one for, for the history nerds among us. Cicero, he's one of the most famous orators at the time, he wrote that crucifixion was the most miserable and most painful punishment appropriate to slaves alone. And that the very mention of the cross should be far removed not only from a Roman citizen's body, but from his mind, his eyes, his ears. And so to say that God's Christ had been crucified was absolute madness. How can a figure of glory endure the worst kind of shameful suffering? It's sort of like on par with saying that Hitler was virtuous. Like It was just so twisted that it couldn't possibly be. And so for the Gentile to honour Christ as God, well, it was foolishness. And yet it was precisely because the cross could not be accepted on any human terms that we read that God was pleased through the foolishness of what Paul preached to save those who believed. And you see that in verse 24. The Jews and the Greeks, they rejected on the basis of human wisdom. But some Jews and some Greeks, those who God has called, are saved. And they come to see in the foolish message the wisdom and power of God. So do you see the irony that's kind of floating around in here? The very thing that the Jews rejected as powerless, the very thing that the Greeks rejected as foolishness becomes the power of God to the Jews and the wisdom of God to the Gentiles. But, and, and here's the key point, only when they are called by God. Only when God intervenes by his spirit and enables us with the eyes of faith to see in the foolish cross his power and wisdom. Because God is using the message of the cross to destroy the wisdom of the world. And that leads us to the second reason that God uses the message of the cross. God destroys the wisdom of the wise and he does that so that nobody will have anything to boast about. And I think this is interesting, right? Because if you kind of just came up to me just randomly without me having thought about this passage and kind of asked, well, what is it that God is doing in the message of the cross? My first inclination would be just, just to say that he's saving people. That, that's, that's how we're saved. That's how you become a Christian. Jesus died on the cross. He rose again. We repent. We live a life under his lordship. We're, we're all good. And that's true. But God here has clearly a much bigger agenda. He doesn't just want to save people from their sinful arrogance. He wants to save them in such a way that it removes any reason that we could have to boast about it and kind of say, yeah, I knew that. I saw that coming. That that whole Trinity thing was a bit of a surprise, but like when, when, when that, that, that Christ was crucified, totally knew that was God. So, um, it made sense to me. That's why I believed it. And Paul says to the Corinthians, that's not how God is operating. And he says in verse 26 to them, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Basically, he calls the Corinthians to look around the room and he says, look at what God chose. Look at what God called. He chose what was foolish, what was weak, what was nothing. He takes the most unlikely of characters, the ones that society would have regarded as the most worthless of their communities, and he saves them by the most foolish of messages. And in doing so, he undercuts every worldly judgment 
every worldly value and every worldly advantage. And it's actually on the basis of, of these verses that, that when people come up and, and they say, oh, Christianity is just for the weak, for the gullible, for the stupid, I actually want to agree with them. And I want to say, yeah, generally speaking, that's right. Because it's these verses that lead me to expect that we should expect to see more people in our churches who don't look wise, who don't look impressive. And not because the Christian message is bogus and only gullible or kind of susceptible people will believe it. Not because it isn't rational. The Christian message is rational because it's truth. It makes sense of our world. But God is not saving people by worldly wisdom. He's not kind of rationalizing them into the kingdom. He's saving people to destroy worldly wisdom. And so he chooses the lowly to respond to his call. And he shames the wise and he shames the strong. And he takes from them anything that they could claim as their own advantage and say, yep, that was me. That, that bit in my salvation, I did that. He does it so that, verse 29, no one can stand before the presence of God and claim that it was his wisdom or his advantage or her wisdom or her advantage that was how they got to God. And if I could just speak plainly for a moment, I think this is why there are weirdos in our churches. So if you can't think of who the weirdo is in your church, you're probably the weirdo. So, um, I think in every church that I've been in, there has been a trifecta. You've got the person who can't sing but sings really loudly and doesn't know. Yeah. You've got the person with the intellectual disability. And you've got the person who, for the life of them, cannot read the social cues, never knows when to just stop the conversation and move on. Right? And the thing that this passage tells me is to not just expect them, but that the people that are in our churches that are like that are actually enacting something about the gospel that is indispensable. You see, when we invite a friend to church, we kind of avoid those people, don't we? We want our friends to come back. So we kind of bring them to church. We want them to have a great time. We want them to meet normal people, maybe even impressive people, the, the, the high-flying CEO or the pilot or whatever else it is. But, but I have never seen anybody bring their friend to church and make a beeline, for example, to, to my friend Jacob. I don't see them kind of bringing him to, to, to their friend to, to him and saying, I want you to see the power of the gospel. Look at how it humbles. Look at how it reminds me of my, that in my worldly eyes, I could never have seen God's salvation. Look at how it, I brought nothing to the table. It shows me that I cannot boast. I've never seen that. Um, and I'm not saying, just, just as a caveat, that you should do that. That's kind of weird and, weird and awkward. But, but, but there's an inescapable reality that God's churches are filled with, on the whole, unimpressive people. And that is a good thing. I used to be a, a trainee minister at a small church in the inner west of Sydney. Um, when you think inner west of Sydney, you've got to think weird and odd. These are the people that dress weird, that have kind of strange hair, that just have odd hobbies. Like just the, It's an eclectic mix of, of fun and, and interesting individuals. Um, and one of my favourite times at this church was the Lord's Supper. Now, I don't know how, how your church does the Lord's Supper. It feels like there's 101 different ways that people do it. But the way that we did it is we had a table at the front. And, and people would walk past the table and they'd pick up the bread and the wine and then they'd go back to their seat and then we'd all eat and drink together. And, and I would sit at the back of the room and I would watch the church get up and, and file through and I'd just kind of tack myself onto the end. And, and I would see the Austrian immigrant get up, the one who always fell asleep in my sermons, take the bread and wine. I would see the single mother divorced with her three kids come up and take the wine. 
I would see the trans person who had transitioned come up, take the bread and the wine. I would see the millionaire couple uh, who owned an international company get up, take the bread and wine and sit down. And what I saw in that moment is a parade of God's wisdom. It wasn't that everybody was unimpressive. We had a millionaire kind of sitting there in our midst, but not many. And what that was doing is showing me the wisdom of the gospel, the message of the cross. It reminded me that God's ways are not like our ways. You see, everything about the message of the cross is such that God alone is sovereign in salvation. And so he designs a message that is so foolish that save for his intervention, no earthly human will ever see in it sense or rationality or coherency. It is just not possible. Because it's only when the heart is regenerated by God that that heart can see God's wisdom in the foolishness of the message of the cross. God chooses. God calls. Verse 30, it is because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. You see, the message of the cross, it removes our worldly and foolish pretensions. It takes away our opportunity to boast. It was designed to do so. And that is why Christianity sounds stupid. God is destroying the wisdom of the wise and he's eliminating all human boasting. So a question for you as we finish. Is it possible that you have embraced that which the gospel was meant to be destroying? Are you ashamed of the message of the cross? Do you kind of try to make it a bit more palatable, kind of leave out the bit about angels or, or, or the bit about like the, the, the fact that, that the Christ, the glorious king, was actually killed under a fake trial? Do you try to make it sound less stupid? Because if you do, then you're playing by worldly wisdom rules, rules that make it impossible to win the game. We're told in verse 17 in the passage previously that Paul was sent to preach the gospel, but not with wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. If we try to dress it up, if we try to use human wisdom to preach the gospel, we empty the cross and we make it powerless to save. And if that's the case, then the only route left to us is the folly of the cross. We need to embrace it. So like the bear hunt, right? You can't go over it, you can't go around it, you have to go through it. And what that means for us is that when we step out into the world that is in desperate need of salvation, we step out with what looks like the puniest of weapons. And when we tell the gospel to someone, it is going to appear weak and silly and foolish. And even though we can see it as the wisdom of God, we will be seen as fools. And yet when you speak that word, it is the most powerful word that you will ever speak. Because it has the power to change hearts. It has the power to save lives precisely because of the form that it takes. And so when we look at the Corinthians, when we look at ourselves, we actually see proof that that's what God is doing in the message of the cross. Because the cross that shames mankind is also the cross that saves mankind. And so if you're a Christian, let me say uh, to you, be confident have a look at verse 31. Therefore, this is Paul's conclusion, at least in this section. As it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Hold your head high, but not because you were clever enough to work out the gospel, you weren't. 
You might end up getting a PhD one day from UWA. You would not be clever enough to see what God has done in the message of the cross. But hold your head up high because God, having called you, having opened your eyes to see the wisdom in the foolish message, you know it to be true and you know it to be the very thing that God is doing with it. You know that it is the message that is powerful to save, even if it sounds so stupid.